0: Amen. Please be seated. It is the sad truth of the people of God that they continually departed and they forgot the Lord. Let's uh, see how this history is applied now to us in a very surprising way. Going back to Hebrews chapter 11, we are studying this great chapter of the hall of faith, so-called, these heroes that have uh, lived by faith and by the Word of the Lord in difficult times. And uh, we pick up reading in chapter 11, verse 32. Um, as uh, we come now, as I say, to the period of the, of the judges. Hebrews 11, verse 32, down to verse 34. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, "...and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness, were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the enemies of the aliens." Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, as they who, being dead, still speak, as these, even in the time of the judges, have their message as a great cloud of witnesses to speak to us, We pray that uh, we might rightly understand and discern this word that you have given, that we too might take both warning and counsel and comfort and be able in our own generation to serve the Lord acceptably. We pray that we should be wise, not repeating their mistakes, but following their faith and looking to their Savior, looking unto Jesus. May we also lay aside every weight and run with endurance the race that is set before us. In Jesus' name, amen. We began this chapter speaking about creation and God's mighty works in the world, how he created the world by his word, and how God's people ever since have lived and died by that word. From Abel, who offered a better sacrifice, and Enoch, who walked with God, and Noah, who delivered his family from the flood, we have considered how those in ancient times trusted in the Lord, often in spite of the greatest difficulties. And in manifold weakness, Abraham and Sarah conceiving, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph walking with their God, people going down to Egypt but being led forth by Moses who chose the reproach of Christ instead of the riches of Egypt, the Lord proving himself faithful time and time and time again. And last week we read how God brought his people into the promised land, bringing down the mighty walls of Jericho while delivering Rahab and her household. She feared the Lord. It's a magnificent history of that life of faith. And the honor roll up to this point in Hebrews has been rather uncontroversial. That is to say, the people listed so far in this chapter have been, if you like, Sunday school heroes in every sense of the word. They have certainly had their faults, to be sure. They have sometimes come from poor backgrounds. But overall, these are the well-established greats of biblical history. But now, we must pause at verse 32 of the next four names that we consider this evening. Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Hold on. Uh, These are not the typical heroes of the Bible. Why are they here? Let's look briefly at their history and consider why they are listed here for us. These are all, of course, from the Book of Judges, describing which describes Israel's history from the time of the conquest under Joshua to the beginning right before the monarchy of Saul, uh, roughly 1380 to 1050 B.C. The book describes the downward spiral of sin, judgment, repentance, and deliverance, and sin and judgment that occurred again and again in the people of God living at that time. And it describes several leaders in Israel whom God raised up to save his people when they cried out to him. Seven times in the book we read that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and worshipped the Baals and the Ashtoreths. And therefore, we read, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hand of their enemies. But when they cried out to the Lord in all their affliction, the Lord heard them and raised up a deliverer, a judge, and a ruler who led God's people to victory over their foes. When the people get in trouble time and time again, and they cry out to the Lord, we think, well, now things will get better. Now they've learned their lesson. But It it does not happen. In fact, each generation inexplicably grows worse. There's more and more degradation in Israel. The judges themselves are more and more degraded. There's a downward spiral. And this catches the first-time reader of the book off guard. And the book seems, in in some ways, even to be a, a disappointment, if I could say that, about the Word of God. But every honest reader goes through this history and scratches his or her head about the prominent characters and the story and wonders, what in the world am I supposed to be taking away from this? One man put it this way, most of the stories in Judges seem to be told to shock the reader. Well, it is very shocking history. A terrible time. And there's a comment, a important comment, twice in the book, that in those days there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Well, in these terrible times or from these terrible times, we have listed here four of the most prominent judges. Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. And if you're not familiar, let me sketch their story for you. Gideon. Gideon was born the son of an idolater. We first meet him hiding in a winepress, and the angel of the Lord appears to him saying, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Right? It's ironic. He's hiding in a wine press, right? And he's terrified to do anything. Uh, he's speaking to a man whom we learned is later the son of God. Uh, he's, tr- he- he's arguing with him. Gideon is trying to talk the Lord out of doing anything with him. But the Lord tells him, no, you go and break down the idol in your town, which he does at night. And his name becomes Jerob Baal, that is, let Baal contend with him. And then after uh, uh, a short time, the, the Lord has another big plan for him to deliver his people from the Midianites. Well, he demands a sign, which comes true, and a, another sign, which, which also comes true. And okay, okay, okay. He leads God's people, and he leads them to victory, a great victory over Midian. But then by the end of the story, you find out that he has not learned all the lessons that he should have. It says in Judges chapter 8, quote, that then Gideon made the gold into an ephod, that is an idol, and set it up in his city, Orpha. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. And Gideon rules harshly at one point, killing all his fellow Israelite men in the city of Penuel. He takes a concubine, and he finishes his backsliding days in idolatry. This is not a Sunday school hero, and his history very much parallels the people's history in the book of Judges. He's, in fact, one of the best ones on the list. He is a weak and sinful man. Next, you have Barak. Deborah, the prophetess, uh, tells Barak, the Lord has given me a word. He wants you to go against Sisera, the captain of the host of Canaan, and deliver his people. The Lord will give them into your hand. Barak says, "Um, I I feel rather chicken at this prospect here. I don't want to go, but I will go Go with me. She says, "Uh, why you wimp? Okay. So, Judges 4, verse 9, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And uh, Deborah becomes the hero in so many ways, not Barak. She's the brave and strong one, and uh, sure enough, victory is given to a woman named J.L. More could be said about this man, but I go on to Samson, a man who is, frankly, dominated by his lusts. His, his parents uh, say to him, "Oi, don't you want a nice Jewish girl? He says, No, Ma, I want that Philistine. So we're told, nevertheless, that it was of the Lord because God wanted to pick a fight with the Philistines because they had been oppressing Israel and God was going to overthrow them. But he gets into a long-term relationship with a Philistine harlot who eventually leads him to his death. It's, it's a horrible and embarrassing story, and the more details I could give you, the more red my face would be. I right, move on to Jephthah. What kind of man do we have here? A man who made a rash vow. Oh Lord, if you give me victory against Amon, I'll sacrifice whatever comes out of my door when I get home. A very stupid thing to say, but when he gets home, he finds his daughter walking out first. And he says, I am a man of my word. Uh, He fulfills his vow. I'm a man of honor. So he sacrifices his daughter. And and by the way, many people have tried to reinterpret the text to say something else, but they're missing the whole point, the point of the book of Judges, that just like Israel, the rulers are getting more and more depraved and, and wicked. And the whole thing even stops making good sense. Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Well, why is this shameful history listed for us here as part of this great cloud of witnesses? Uh, is the book saying, Remember how weak and, and simple they were, now go and do thou likewise? No, hardly. I, I will remind you that this is a chapter on faith, on faith. Faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The whole chapter has this one message. And the fact that they are included here, the message to us is that, look at them. And despite all their glaring, manifest weakness and sinfulness, even they stand as perpetual examples of what God will do With people of faith. For one thing, all these men had in common besides their weakness that they had faith in the God of Israel, and their weakness was turned to strength. And that, as we read, they subdued kingdoms. They, even they, worked righteousness. They routed foreign armies. It doesn't say, remember how weak and sinful they were. It says, Do you see how even such people, through faith, were made strong? This Gideon, weak and sinful as he was, he routed a huge army of the Midianites with a company of 300 men. And despite everything else in his life that was shameful, he did believe in the Lord his God. And he went on in his calling in faith and did mighty things. Barak, weak, sinful as he was, believed the word of the Lord, and eventually went and became a mighty deliverer. And it says, he routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot, and so forth. He was weak in himself. But going forward in faith, God vindicated him in battle. It does not say be a chicken just like him. It says, remember, that even such a chicken had his weakness turned to strength through faith in God. And this will make the difference for you. Jephthah, foolish as he was. Uh, there's, there's little to be gained in a Sunday school lesson but this. It says of him in Judges eleven twenty nine, 29, that he believed and the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. Here he is weak, foolish, confused, sinful. He did believe the word of God and that weakness by faith was turned to strength. And Samson, what can we say? So weak, so sinful. We'll see him in heaven. Think of that. For, for after so many ugly chapters in his life, after he sinned himself into captivity, and humiliation, after he had sinned himself into to be degraded before the very people over whom he should have been victorious, after he was taken in by a woman because he was such a, a fool and led by his lusts, after all that and more, God let him be blinded and put into prison and used like an animal and, and, and for the sport and amusement of the philistines but but there, even there. He called upon the Lord, his God, and he prayed, O God, remember me, fool that I am. Look what I did. All these things that you've given me, and I took all this grace and this goodness, just like Israel. I took all these blessings that you gave me, and I threw them away to satisfy my lust with the Canaanites. And I've made an utter mess of my life and my mission, just like Israel here I am, O Lord, and I ask you to remember me once more and let me me die with the Philistines. And we read that he pushed with all of his might and down came the temple upon the rulers and all the people in it. And thus he killed many more when he died than when when he lived. What can we say about this man except that he had faith, you see. And the Bible doesn't say be like Samson and make a total moral wreck of your life. But the Lord loved him. And the Lord chose him, and he used him mightily. That weak man, even his weakness, was turned to strength by faith. You see, this is, in so many ways, a shocking passage. Shocking, I say. The inclusion of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah in the hall of faith, without comment or without qualification, has far-reaching implications for our faith. And I have five of them for you briefly. (laughs) Number one, that we too must go on in faith despite our manifest sins. That we too must go on in faith despite our manifest sins. I'm going to uh, have a little bit longer quote here by John Calvin because I simply can't improve and because I think that he just nails it so, so well here. The apostle... "...ascribes all that was praiseworthy in them to faith, though there was not one of them whose faith did not halt. Gideon was slower to take up arms than when he ought to have been, nor did he venture out without some hesitation to commit himself to God. Barak was at first trembled so that he was almost forced by the reproofs of Deborah, Samson being so overcome by the blandishments of a concubine." inconsiderably betrayed the safety of his whole people. Jephthah, hasty in making a foolish vow, was too obstinate in performing it, marring the finest victory by the cruel death of his own daughter. Listen. Thus, in all the saints, something reprehensible is ever to be found. But faith, though halting and imperfect, is still approved by God. And there is therefore no reason why the faults we labor under should break us down or dishearten us, provided we go on by faith in the race of our calling. Do you look at the things of your past and say, God, why... Why why are you even still with me? What what have I made of my life? In all the saints there is something reprehensible ever to be found, but faith, though halting, that is limping and imperfect, is still approved by God. And therefore there is no reason why the faults that you and I labor under should break down or dishearten us, provided we by faith go on in the race of our calling. You see, that's their shocking message for us. But I'm not done. Number two, we must beware a religion of moralism. We must beware a religion of moralism. The religion of the Bible has a place for Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, even as examples for us. And they, like Abel, being dead, still speak. And they speak to us and warn us against a religion of moralism, which is an accursed branch or imitation of the Christian faith that has the legs cut off of it, that has made it utterly impotent and irrelevant in the world. And these four men bury moralism by the very mention of their names. But the true gospel is so wonderful that people can scarcely believe it is true. So sweet the sound... Could it possibly be that something other than our own goodness and holiness is the ground of our entrance into eternal life and the glories of heaven? Could it be that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him every everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses? Can it be? That is the true power of Christianity, my friends, that there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. There's our religion. And Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah can only say a meek but hearty amen because that is their only plea. You see... That is the only thing they have to commend them. But that faith does commend them, both to God and to us. Ernest Hemingway tells the story about a Spanish father who wanted to reconcile with his estranged son, Paco. Uh, Paco had gotten in a fight with his father, and he'd run off to the city of Madrid. So the father took out an ad in the newspaper, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montaña." Noon, Tuesday, all is forgiven. Papa. And when the father goes to the square, he finds 800 young men named Paco waiting for their fathers. Because grace is what people desire. Grace is what people crave and it seems are so often denied. You know that Hemingway himself grew up with Christian parents and his grandparents even went to Wheaton. But in his house growing up despite their Christian profession there was no grace and at least it seems from his own description of it I understand it's colored but his parents seem to be especially critical and exacting and miserable and Hemingway's own father killed himself and he never got over hating his mother and how common it is for Christian people in Christian homes in Christian churches to think that God is like that But I tell you today, in the name not only of Jesus, but of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, there is grace. That we are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works lest anyone should boast. We do not have a religion of moralism. I, I am not saying that we need to embrace their sins, perish the thought. But I am saying we must beware a religion of moralism, too often masquerading as Christianity, and say to all, to all even tonight, who would come to the Lord Jesus, come and welcome, and it is not your deeds that will get you in or keep you in. It will be the Lord's great work, and that no matter how halting and imperfect your faith, that you too are welcomed into his eternal life. Beware a religion of moralism. Number three, they tell us how we are deeply affected by the sins of our age. We are all deeply affected by the sins of our age. These times of the judges here brought before us, thankfully with only a few words, were a very low point in Israel's spiritual history. And the believers there that were yet remaining among the Israelites They were living their lives of faith at a much lower level than believers at other times when the nation was more spiritually healthy. You know, it's always hard to live a holy life But let's face it, it is harder at some times than others. It's true of our day. I mentioned earlier, we're living through the second phase of the sexual revolution in our country and all that it's meaning for our life and outlook and the sins that are creeping their way into the church and are more common among God's people. I make absolutely no excuse. The sins of the judges in their day brought utter misery, misery for them, apostasy for many others, especially the ones closest to them, even their own households, led away from the Lord. And if we are living at a time that makes holiness more difficult, then the only possible response on our part as believing people is to be all the more determined to live holy lives, even if, like we just read in Genesis, we have to stand alone like dear Joseph. We are all deeply affected by the sins of our age. Fourth, Some believers have a harder time of it than others. Some believers have a harder time of it than others. Uh, Jephthah had a prostitute for a mother. His half-brothers hated him. He was driven away from home. Uh, Well, again, much more we could say. And and none of this excuses him, please. Although it, it, it does explain some of the darkness that we see in Jephthah and explains the struggles that we see in people's lives today. You know, everyone isn't given the same light. Everyone isn't given grace in the same measure. Everyone isn't raised in a happy home and a faithful church to enjoy the gospel privileges and a fine education and traveling in circles populated by the, by the, by the salt of the earth Christian people. This is not everyone's situation. And to whom much is given, much is required, a principle that must always be considered, and so we shouldn't just look back at them and say, well, if if they were in and i 'm in then well look God hasn't given everyone the same advantages, and we need to understand this when we get up on our high horse and look down on someone else in that time or even someone else in this time. We, we realize to his own master, everyone stands or falls, and to whom much is given, much will be required, and so let us all live as we have grace to live before the Lord Jesus, recognizing that some do have it harder than others. But finally, number five, there is in every believing life a great deal that is ugly, harmful, and unworthy of the grace that we have received. There is in every believing life a great deal that's ugly, harmful, and utterly unworthy of the grace we've received. I wonder if these judges had any sense of just how sinfully they were living their lives before God. I mean, such was the darkness and ignorance of the times. They may have compared themselves to others unwisely and said, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not as other men. They may have thought that, you know, hey, all things considered, I'm, I'm a holy man. At least I'm a man of the Lord in such a time. I don't know. In the same way, we too have a tendency to compare ourselves with ourselves, which the Apostle says is not wise. God sees the heart. And we have been more sinful and self-centered in countless ways than we can possibly know. Other people see enough of it, and God sees all of it. But the Bible does show us people who are saved by grace, while it shows us their faults. So that we can see that in flesh and blood there is no hope. We are in the same condition. But if He was their Savior, then He can be ours as well. And so we come to Jesus, not saying, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not as other men. But this teaches us all that we must, in our ignorance, in our darkness, beat our breasts and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified. Does that strike you? Does that shock you? That the religious man who says, I thank you that I'm not, as other men, adulterers, fornicators, even this tax collector, I fast twice in a week, I give tithes of all that I possess, this man was rejected. The tax collector who wouldn't even so much as lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, God have mercy on me, a sinner, Jesus, says, that's God's man he went home justified rather than the other. For I tell you that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. These four men preach that gospel to us. Well, a shocking passage tonight. And I haven't mentioned it, but this letter to the Hebrews doesn't say who wrote it, Some in the early church thought Paul wrote it, some not. Um, The the Greek is not Paul's Greek. Others have explained it, that maybe it was uh, written originally in Hebrew and then translated to Greek, but no matter. Who put down this letter in a hundred ways, I tell you that we do have the doctrine of the great apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul. I won't get into all the ins and outs tonight. It's not my purpose, but there is this... Signature triplet of faith, hope, and love that appears twice in chapter 6 and chapter 10. We read of Timothy's release at the end and so forth here. Uh, The doctrine is Pauline. Before we consider, conclude our study today, I'd like to remember whose doctrine this is. Considering the man who was God's chosen instrument to stand before kings, To bring the gospel to nations. The Apostle Paul could truly say that he was the chief of sinners, that of all the people on the earth, he hated Christ and his church the most. He pursued them, he persecuted them from town to town. He writes he was a a blasphemer and a persecutor, and a violent man. He testifies, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I hunted them down in foreign cities. I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. This man was a religious sinner, which are generally the sinners of the worst sort. Hardened, angry, violent, full of knowledge, and full of spite, the most evil man of his day. And Paul says, for this very reason, Sorry, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him uh, to everlasting life. That, as it were, you could imagine Jesus looking at the world of this day, and the choice was obvious. Of the man who could proclaim grace to the world. Here was a man who could be the living embodiment of grace. For Jesus not only took this man and forgave him, but then made him the chief apostle to the nations. A faithful saying, then worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And so I can confidently say to you all that whatever your sins have been, whether you have been weak and wavering, as the best of them were, or whether you have been religious in a very hypocritical and sinful way, as was that chief of sinners, you are to come home to a Savior and to find a wide welcome. For not only is there salvation in Jesus, there is the calling for you too to become a pillar in the house of our God and the very person in whom the Lord may demonstrate the power of His grace in this generation and maybe for generations to come. Rahab, we considered last week, found it. Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, they all found it. David, after so many great sins mentioned next, he found it, even Paul found it. They found it. Why can't you find it too? If there is hope for these, can any of you say, there's no hope for me? Don't be downcast and say, oh, I'm useless. I'm hopeless. I can't do anything because of my past, my sins, my present weakness. If that's you, here are four men to your rescue. And they all say, come, Jesus. For this, they all say together, is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we take our own place in the covenant of grace and take up our own challenges in this generation, we pray that however manifest our own weakness, however much our fears and failings, that nevertheless that we too would have grace to go on in our calling by faith, O oh Lord, we've seen what you've done even with these, the weakest of men, and how the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ teaches us to reject those gross sins which characterizes the lives of these that went before. But we nevertheless recognize that by, great, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ extending to them even it do, as it does to us, that by faith they went on. And so we ask you, O oh Lord, that if, if they look to you In faith, however weak, and you are with them in battle, turning their weakness into strength. O Lord, may that same grace of Christ make us strong in faith, that we too might find him a place of refuge for sinners and go forth in your name. Forgive us our sins for the sake of Christ. O Lord, we are weak. May our weakness be turned to strength, we ask it.